Carlos' sons were not in the running for head of the family. They didn't have any positions of sufficient seniority in the family. But bloodlines were important to Carlo, so he picked 61-year-old cousin, Big Paul Castellano, who was the wrong man for the job. But he was family, and the Castellanos had helped Gambino earlier in his years make his way in America. But Paul wasn't a gangster. He was a businessman. He never killed anyone or had ever been a loan shark. So it was interesting to see how he would take Carlo's spot. Paul being 13 years younger than Gambino, he was born in New York in 1915. His father was a butcher and ran numbers for mob bookies. Paul dropped out in the eighth grade and helped his father run numbers and he became a meat cutter. Paul was intrigued by the mafia life and it was all out of greed. He grew up in a middle class area with rare crime. In 1934, at 19, Paul and his friends had set up a robbery. Paul's friends got away and Paul got caught. He did not rat on his friends and he did three months in jail time. When he got out, the word had spread that he didn't rat. He became a young hero around the thugs in the neighborhood. He was also noticed by many men in the mob. Through his connections with the Maganu family, through Carlo, he was initiated to La Costa Nostra. At 22, he took out the Carlo in another way, by using family to solidify ties and organize crime. He married a distant cousin, Carlo's sister-in-law, Nina Mano. They had four children, three sons and one daughter. When Paul joined the mafia, he still did not give up his career. He still owned a lucrative wholesale meat company. During the reign of Carlo, Paul had stayed close to him, gaining his trust, and became a captain. He was part of the way that Carlo had planned to diversify the mafia and put together what they call the White Rackets. Political corruption, construction bed rigging, and union infiltration. But the guys at the bottom of the mafia chain knew nothing about these things. There were more killers, hijackers, robbers, and enforcers that had been working for years with the mob. And they felt that Paul just had greatness handed to him without even getting his hands dirty like the rest. This would bring envy. Out of the 800 gangsters that made up the Gambino family, the more popular decision would have been the second in command, the underboss, Neil Della Crocha, the epitome of Mafia's old school, unquestionable loyalty. He operated out of the Raven Knight Social Club in Little Italy. He ran extortion, gambling, and loan shocking. With him being passed over for the job, he took it in silence, even though he was disappointed. But some of the guys didn't take things so well. They thought that Neil should be next in charge. One of the main guys being John Gotti. But Paul kept the peace with Della Crocia and his gang and let them run and control all the street rackets they were running. Besides, Paul looked down on this kind of activity because he had so many legit businesses. He didn't really care to deal with these kind of things. He went through so much trouble to show that he was a businessman and not a mobster. He didn't want to be feared. He wanted to be negotiated with, which lost him a lot of respect in the family and on the streets. Another way he was different from Carlo was the way that he lived. Carlo lived in a modest regular home in Brooklyn. Paul built a mansion from the ground up and called it his White House. He was isolated from the life 
of the average mobster family. He didn't mix with the troops like Carlo. Carlo was approachable, and if he could do something for you, he would. Castellano rather spent his time dining with Fortune 500 execs at the Spark Steakhouse and being catered to. He was spoiled. But behind closed doors, Paul's marriage was not happy. He and his wife were sleeping in separate rooms, most of the time not speaking, sometimes having a good time, other times not talking for two weeks at a time. Paul was also suffering from diabetes, and one of the side effects was erectile dysfunction. He then turned to his Colombian maid, Gloria, and started to tell her how lonely it was and scary to run a crime family. He eventually would get a penile implant to have this affair with his mistress, the maid Gloria. As news got around that Paul was out here making an ass of himself, the rest of the ones around him started to fear him less and then hating him. One man held on to this hate and it was John Gotti. Castellano started to move up how much he wanted from each of his crew's profits. He took it from 10 to 15%. He felt he was the boss and he should get more. Even if his Christmas present wasn't big enough or the envelope wasn't big enough, he would voice his opinion and say he's not satisfied. The blue collar fraction, ran by Neil Della Croce, started to complain. But what could they do? He was the boss, and Neil just wanted to keep the peace. In the 80s, Manhattan was doing a lot of building at the time, and Castellano was getting a big percentage of it all, as contractors paid a mob tax to get the concrete delivered. This also helps in making New York construction costs the highest in the nation, and Castellano did not want anybody ruining this multi-million dollar machine. One crew that he kept his eye on was John Gotti's crew at the Bergen Hutton Fishing Club in Queens. John Gotti, who was a capo now, had been voicing his opinion how he wanted a bigger cut in the action in the cargo jacking rackets at JFK. Also, it was said that they were involved in trafficking drugs, which the boss told none of his men to be involved with. But he knew that Gotti was unhappy, and he didn't really care, because he was thinking about splitting up the crew anyway. They weren't fitting in with the new business plan, but not knowing this mistake will cost Castellano his life. But Castellano was no stranger to violence, mafia style. He just preferred deal making for killing. He showed that in a deal with some Irish thugs in Manhattan and somewhere known as Hell's Kitchen. They were called the Westies. They did labor racketeering, extortion, and murder for hire. They were eliminating all the competition on their turf including allies of the Gambino family. Big Paulie called a meeting with the Irishman Jimmy Conan and Nicky Featherstone in Brooklyn to his favorite restaurant, Tomaza's, and made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. For 10% of their earnings, he let them use his name of the Gambino family. The only condition was, if they wanted someone killed, they would need permission from the family. They happily took this deal. Then in fall of 78, police had an investigation going on on several West Side homicides. And none of the witnesses were talking because they heard Castellano's name was involved in the crimes. The Irish had taken advantage and they kept killing. That's when the police decided to go to Castellano himself. 
So he met with them on his own turf, again at the same restaurant, Tamaza's. He came there with six of his entourage, and the restaurant owner moved things around so they could sit down and talk. They asked Castellanos to cut ties with the Irishman. He listens, acknowledges that he knows them, and says they're nice Irish kids. Castellano had no interest in working with them, but to protect himself, he told the Westies just to stop using his name directly. He wasn't going to stop collecting, there was too much money coming out of Hell's Kitchen. So the mayhem continued, and Paul continued to collect his 10%. One of the most dangerous crews that Paul knew was in the Gambino family, ran by a serial killer named Roy DeMeo. They were into narcotics, loan sharking, and murder for hire. Paul used them as hitmen. It was said they did over 200 murders. One of the hits that Paul ordered was on Frank Amato, who was married to his daughter Connie. Paul heard that Frank was cheating on Connie and beating her while she was pregnant. And when she had a miscarriage, he blamed Frank and ordered the hit. On September 20th, 1980, Frank ended up going missing and his body was never found and the case was never solved. And for the next couple of years, things went smooth with DeMeo. Paul let them do what they wanted as long as he got his cut. But in 1982, Paul got word that the police were investigating DeMeo for drugs and murders. And he called a meeting with DeMeo to strategize about the investigation. DeMeo never showed up and Paul had him killed. He was found in his own trunk in January 10th, 1983. Like many of the guys who had alienated the boss, they knew their only hope was to strike first. In March 1983, FBI wanted to find a way to plant a bug inside of Castellano's home. The police would catch up to his mistress, Gloria, and ask her questions all the time. She had told Paul, and Paul would just tell her don't answer any questions and don't worry. Until one day Gloria was approached by an officer, and she casually revealed that he took all his phone calls and meetings at the kitchen table but she had no idea she was telling them where to plant the bug. But it wasn't easy to get into Castellano's house. He had high quality security cameras and a dog that roamed the property. So FBI sit in a disguised repairman. At the time, Castellano, Gloria, and Paul's driver, Tommy Bellotti, were all in the house. Bellotti hovered over the agent, watching his every move, but the agent still managed to plant the device and pretend that he was fixing what he was fixing. Now the FBI was in position to monitor Paul's everyday activity. Over a four month period, the FBI recorded over 600 hours of conversation. And with the audio tapes, he outlined mafia business, badmouth other bosses, and spoke about all the family business. Then on August 23rd, 1983, eight Gambino soldiers were arrested. Gotti's friend Angelo Ruggiero and Gotti's younger brother Gene were arrested for smuggling heroin. But most of the information came from Angelo Ruggiero's wiretap in his house the FBI had planted. They called him Quack Quack because he talked too much. FBI knew they had enough on the tapes to prove that Castellano was running the Gambino family. But he was still in the dark about it and beyond mad that John Gotti's crew was dealing drugs. Also from the tapes that were used against Ruggiero, Paul was anxious to know 
if he was mentioning them. So he had demanded that Neil Della Croce bring a copy of the wiretap evidence to him. Ruggiero had been provided them while he was waiting trial. But little did everybody know, the FBI had a bug planted in Neil Della Croce's bedroom as well. And at the time, Neil was dying of brain cancer. Ruggiero, who would not give up the tapes, thinking that this would mean death to him. Neil Della Croce did not want to go to war over the tapes, so he stalled for time. March 30th, 1984, Paul Castellano was charged with 51 counts of racketeering for sanctioning the killing of 25 people, stealing cars, and selling drugs. He was released on $2 million bond, and then he tried to get back to business. Then on February 25th, 1985, Paul was arrested again, this time with the rest of the bosses of the New York crime families, the bosses that were on the board of directors. Charged with racketeering, connection with shaking down New York building contractors and demanding a 2% tax on cement jobs, and all of this information came from Paul's kitchen. This was known as the commission case. There were talks in the family about Castellano and how he might start working with the FBI and RAT. Those are the kind of rumors that make mobsters want to grab their gun. John Gotti wanted to kill Castellano because he thought the family would be better off without him. But Neil was not hearing it. Then on December 2nd, 1985, Neil died of brain cancer and John Gotti was in charge of the crew now. In the days following Neil's death, Castellano had announced that he was going to break up the crew and reassigning them punishment for the heroin dealing. Then he skipped Neil Della Croce's wake, saying that it was bad for business and that he was sent a card. He didn't care too much, and this was disrespectful to La Costa Nostra. That was the last straw for John Gotti. First, he went to a longtime supporter of Castellano, Frank DiCicco. And DiCicco agreed to help John Gotti in exchange for being underboss when Gotti took charge. So DiCicco worked his magic. He told Castellano that the guys were mad at him for skipping Neil's wake. And this is the way he can make it up to them and pay his respects. So he arranged a dinner at the Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan. The dinner was set for December 16th. So after Christmas shopping and dropping off gifts to his lawyer's office, Paul headed to Sparks around 5 p.m. with his driver, Tommy Bellotti. When they pulled up to the curb to Sparks Steakhouse, four gunmen rushed the car, shooting them both in the head several times. Within minutes, cops had a list of potential suspects, and one of the top people was a 45-year-old gangster named John Gotti. Christmas 1985, just nine days after the killing. Question was in the underworld. Who was next to be the new boss? And it wasn't long before everyone found out, including the FBI. Doing surveillance outside the Ravenite Social Club in Little Italy, they would see some of the top mafiosi lined up to kiss the cheek of the new head of the family, John Gotti. Of the two leaders of the Gambino crime family so far, it's not hard to see the difference in the two. Carlo was respected, humble, and one of the most greatest mob bosses of all time. Castellano had forgotten that he was a criminal and tried to be too corporate. He got greedy, and also he lost touch with his soldiers. 
which led to his downfall. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Most Notorious Gangsters in the World, Gambino Family Edition. If you want to continue with this episode of John Gotti, I have the episode on him by himself leading up to his takeover and how he took over from start to finish. I'm Corey Franchise. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe. Content comes out two times a week, y'all. Peace. Keep the change, you filthy animal.